This is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! A flat lens, a con man terrific tree photos, and more. Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 323 for Sunday, March 12th, 2023. And unusual in today's episode, I'm covering the news and rumor stories that caught my eye for this past week. First up from Petapixel, six ethical considerations when doing street photography. I love street photography. I teach street photography. I promote street photography. I defend street photography and want everyone to experience the fun of doing street photography. There are a lot of people who are not street photographers, of course, who get their neckers in a twist about how street photography is unethical. The haters think it's rude, disrespectful, and an invasion of privacy. And while some street photographers give street photography a bad name, we're not all bad. So let's take a look at a few ethical considerations. First of all, privacy. While it might be legal to take photographs of people in public places, always check the laws wherever you are, though, because they vary from country to country. It doesn't always mean that you should. It's crucial for street photographers to understand the impact that their photographs can have on the people they take pictures of. Remember that you are doing something without someone's explicit consent. So whether you like it or not, you are intruding on their privacy, even if it's a public place and it's legal to do so. Therefore, it's important to be respectful of people's boundaries and avoid photographing anything that might be incriminating or embarrassing such as kissing, for example, because it could be an affair, or where someone's knickers are, uh, are shown by accident or someone is visibly upset. It is also essential for street photographers to understand the context of the environment they are photographing in. For example, taking photographs of people in a crowded city street is vastly different from taking pictures of people in a small rural village. In some cultures, taking photographs without permission can be considered offensive or even taboo. Street photographers should always be aware of the cultural norms and values of the places they are capturing and be respectful of them. By being mindful of the impact of their photographs and showing empathy towards their subjects, street photographers can create images that are both legally and ethically sound. How cool is that? Number two, power dynamics. As a photographer, you hold a lot of power because you get to choose how you portray a person or a situation. So special care needs to be taken if you are photographing marginalized or vulnerable communities or indeed vulnerable people such as rough sleepers who you haven't had a chat with first. So when photographing vulnerable people such as the homeless or rough sleepers, it's crucial to approach them with compassion and empathy. These people are often in challenging situations, and it's your responsibility to be mindful of their feelings and experiences. It's also important to remember that these people are human beings with dignity and agency and deserve to be treated with respect and empathy, not as easy targets for a gritty black-and-white photograph for likes on Instagram. 3. Cultural Sensitivity Similar to the above, it's good to keep in mind how you are representing people and communities from cultures different from your own. That's not to say you shouldn't photograph other cultures, just to be mindful you're not buying into and perpetuating stereotypes or bias. Instead, be mindful and respectful and approach your subjects with an open mind and an open heart. Safety you need to be on it as a street photographer and have a keen sense of awareness of potential hazards, such as road traffic, for one thing, 
It's not just about safeguarding your own well-being, though, but also being considerate of the safety of the people you're photographing. You could find yourself in an unsafe situation that's potentially dangerous. So, you not only have to think about staying safe yourself, but also think about the safety of whoever you're photographing. An awkward fistfight or someone falling on the ground might make a funny photo, but people could be getting injured. Number five, intrusive shooting. Intrusive shooting is a big no-no in street photography, although some street photographers will disagree. You don't want to be all up in someone's face without their permission, causing them to jump out of their skin. Not only is it rude, but it's potentially dangerous for both you and the subject. The person you're photographing could have a weak heart or already suffer from some, some kind of trauma. I know it sounds dramatic, but do you really want to risk harming someone? Just make sure you're not getting too close for comfort and be respectful of people's personal space. Remember, the best photos are the ones that are taken with care and consideration, not by scaring the bejesus out of someone. 6. Post-Processing It's important to remember that as a street photographer, your goal is to capture the reality of the scene. That means not adding in elements that weren't there, no matter how much it might enhance the photo, even if a guy passing by on a bike would have made your layers perfect. Sure, you can adjust the exposure or tweak the color, but don't go overboard. Cropping and fixing the horizon is also good to go. The key thing is to keep it real and authentic and let the scene speak for itself. So in summary, some ethical considerations for the modern-day street photographer include respect the privacy and dignity of the people you are photographing as much as possible. Consider the power dynamics at play when taking photos. Be cultural, culturally sensitive so as not to feed into stereotypes and biases. Put the safety of the people you are photographing above the photograph. Think about the risks and consequences of intrusive shooting before getting in someone's face. Avoid the temptation to add or remove elements that change the reality of the scene at all costs. Is there anything that you would add to this? And I love this article from Petapixel. And as you know, if you've been listening to the show to any amount of time, I absolutely love street photography. It is probably my very favorite genre of photography and environmental portraits being a close second. And I do agree with everything that the author talks about in this article. And I think they're all key points that you should keep in mind when you're doing street photography. Single flat lens used to photograph the moon for the first time ever. A Penn State-led research team has developed a flat single lens telescope that was able to capture clear images of the moon. Known as a meta lens, it achieved far greater resolution and imaging distance than any meta lens before it. Instead of using Multiple elements arranged into groups, how optics are currently constructed and everything from interchangeable camera lenses to smartphones, a meta lens instead uses a single flat lens surface that is covered in a meta surfaces that manipulate light. The method has been demonstrated in the past as able to allow for rudimentary photography, but the quality has been significantly worse than traditional methods. Additionally, meta lenses typically have pretty poor telephoto capabilities. Quote, traditional camera or telescope lenses have a curved surface of varying thickness, where you have a bump in the middle and thinner edges, which causes the lens to be bulky and heavy, Corresp uh, corresponding another Zingzi Ni, associate professor of electrical engineering and computer science at Penn State, ex explains. Quote, metal lenses use nanostructures on the lens instead of curvature to contour light, which allows them to lay flat. Nee and a team of researchers recognize that despite the potential benefits of optics being uh, uh, using a metal lens, for example, they present the possibility of truly flat cameras, which would be a major boon for smartphones. They have to this point been quite limited. That's what makes their advancement so exciting. For the first time, the researchers have been able to demonstrate a highly efficient single-lens refractive meta-lens telescope 
that was able to photograph a close-up image of the moon. While not sharp by the standard set by current high-end optics, it is considerably more detailed than is typically expected from metal lenses. The team included a short video that showcases how its system is also able to capture closer objects with more fidelity than most expect out of a metal lens. They did this by scaling the size of the metal lens up from what are typically only millimeters wide to 8 centimeters in diameter, about 4 inches, which allowed it to successfully be deployed in a larger optical system such as a telescope. Not only were they able to scale up the size of the metal lens, they were also able to develop a fabrication method that is simple enough that it could be mass-produced. The large metal lens was able to capture a clear image of the surface of the moon and achieved a greater resolution of objects that were much farther away from the metasurface than any previously developed metal lens. Below is a photo of the telescope along with a diagram of how the metal lens was arranged. The results are promising, but there is still room for improvement. The team says that before its methods can be applied to modern cameras and the expectations that come along with them, they need to address chromatic aberration issues that the lens currently suffers from. Typical optical systems correct chromatic aberration by stacking a series of differently shaped and treated lenses together, but that's not an option for the single flat metal lens. Quote, we are exploring smaller and more sophisticated designs in the visible range and will compensate for various optical aberrations, including chromatic aberrations, Nee says. The team's full research paper titled High Efficiency 80mm Aperture Metal Lens Telescope has been published to Nano Letters. And I think this is really cool. That was one of the reasons why I wanted to cover this article, because it is extremely unheard of to make a single flat lens to be used for photographing the moon or other astrophotography phenomenon. So uh, congratulations to the team for this new design. Chroma Cameras CubePan 35mm is an improved panoramic film camera. Chroma Cameras has released a new and improved version of its CubePan 135 format panoramic camera. Camera. The 2023 version includes the same features as last year's original, although it now includes better usability based on feedback from photographers. Chroma Camera's founder, Steve Lloyd, tells Cosmo Photo that the new version of the CubePan 35mm system camera is an exciting multi format panoramic 35mm camera system which uses magnetic lens cones to allow for multiple focal lengths from 47mm to 180, along with compatibility with all Mamiya press lenses and a dedicated pinhole plate, too. Lloyd decided to release the new version following helpful feedback from photographers using the original version. Lloyd worked with these photographers to further improve the CubePan 35mm nano or pano camera. The improved model has the same compact size and lens compatibility as its predecessor, although it features a grip design like Chroma's medium format camera designs, as some photographers found the original CubePan's grip too narrow when using larger, heavier lenses. Quote, after redesigning the grip from my larger cameras for the CubePan, I felt that the added stability from the combination of both front and rear grips helps when using the camera handheld. So I decided to make it a standard feature, Lloyd tells Cosmo Photo. Another improvement comes in the form of the new dark, dark slide holder. This allows users to change lenses without affecting the loaded film. While the Q-Pan is designed for the widest panoramic frame format, 24 by 72 millimeters, it comes with a slot in baffles to reduce the frame size to 24 by 48 millimeters or 24 by 24 millimeters. When using the 24 by 24 frame size, the new dark slide holder allows photographers to swap lenses while using the same roll of film as the roll allows 52 frames at 24 by 24. As a nod to Lloyd's first camera, the Advanced 45, which he launched on Kickstarter in 2018, the 2023 Cube Pan comes in a variety of colorways, including black, classic wood, light stone, pro-orange, olive green, purple, and matte blue. 
The 135 format Q-Pan uses dedicated interchangeable magnetic lens cones to change the focal length. The eight neodymium, dimium, I'm sorry, magnets are unchanged, but Lloyd has added a mechanical latch on the left side of the cone. The opposite, the camera's grip to make it easier to release the magnets. The compact camera body weighs only 274 grams or 9.7 ounces, which Chroma Camera says makes it easy to carry in a small bag. The camera includes a pair of machined aluminum winding knobs and a precise ratchet to wind the film. There are a pair of clicked frame counter wheels on the camera's base to allow the user to keep track of film usage. The camera includes a standard one-quarter inch tripod thread in its base and a centered cold shoe on the top plate with an integrated bubble level. The Q-Pan doesn't come with a lens but comes with one lens cone helicoid. If a photographer wants to use a specific lens that isn't listed on Chroma's website, it may be possible for Chroma to design a custom one, provided the lens's rear element is smaller than 60 millimeters in diameter and its shutter size is smaller than 54 millimeters. The 2023 CubePan 135 format panoramic camera is available to order now for $429. The camera will be built in three to four weeks following your purchase. And I thought this was a pretty cool camera. That's why I wanted to cover this article. And I hadn't heard of it before, so I didn't know that this was the second generation of this style of camera. But I think it's absolutely cool. A con man, credit card fraud, and a stolen fine art photograph. Back in December, a young man walked into one of the fine art galleries that represent my photographs and engaged the gallery owner in a conversation about some of my prints. He seemed to be familiar with my work, said that his girlfriend was actually a fan, and remarked that he had been thinking of buying her a piece. The gallery owner's first impression was that the guy didn't seem like the typical art buyer. But not wanting to judge a book by its cover, he chatted with the man for a while. The notion of an eccentric art buyer outside of the typical mold certainly wasn't beyond the realm of possibility. The man was maybe around 5'10", with curly black hair, thin-skinned, or light-skinned, I'm sorry, perhaps Middle Eastern. He didn't seem to speak with any kind of accent. His vernacular, like his clothing, was sort of, sort of hip-hop. The guy ultimately decided to buy three photographs that day with a total order that was more than $10,000. He mentioned that he did consulting for some clubs in Miami that were owned by his girlfriend's father. But he admitted candidly that he had to be careful about his spending as his relationship with the father was a bit strained. When it came time to make the payment, he used Apple Pay on his phone, asking if he could spread out the order over a few different credit cards. He explained that he had separate budgets for the clubs that he had to accommodate. He provided a billing address in Miami. However, he asked that one of the photographs, a 24 by 36 inch acrylic dye bond mount of Champagne Scuba 2014, be shipped to his place in Denver. He'd make arrangements for the other two pieces to be shipped later. The charges went through without any issues. A refund request. The next day, the customer called the gallery in the early afternoon. The gallery owner said that it seemed to him that the guy sounded groggy, hungover as if he had been out late partying. The customer said that upon reflection, he had maybe spent a bit more the previous day than was prudent. He mentioned a father back in Dubai that might be angry with him. So he asked if he could refund two of the three pieces he had purchased. He still wanted to proceed with the champagne piece that was to be shipped to Denver. And he did ultimately want the other two photographs, but he said it would be better if the clubs in Miami would contact the gallery after the holidays and pay for them directly from a different budget. The gallery put the man on hold for a couple of minutes while they processed a partial refund to his methods of payment using the transaction numbers from the previous day. When this was complete and they told the customer it was done, the man grew angry and frustrated. He barked that he had wanted to designate the accounts the funds would be applied to. It was too late to do that as the refunds already went through. The man hung up abruptly. Shipping the order. 
The gallery called my studio that day to ask if I could print and mount a new champagne scuba photograph for them. They had one in inventory at the gallery, but as it was a popular piece, they wondered if I would blind ship one from my studio directly to Denver so they could hold on to the one they had. Of course, I said it was no problem. The gallery owner mentioned that he felt slightly uneasy about the buyer. His intuition was telling him that something didn't seem right. He mentioned the shipping address in Denver, the billing address in Miami, and a reference to family back in Dubai. But he did confirm that the payment went through and he did express the possibility of additional sales after the holiday. The contact information for the delivery was Jebby Gazine, uh, Gazine, 2180 South Colorado Boulevard, Attention Nancy, Receiving Room, Denver, Colorado, 80222, with a phone number of 786-575-4196. Before I placed the order that day, I did a little research on my own. I first looked up the shipping address on Google Maps to see if the location was some kind of freight forwarder or a shady-looking house. What I found was a fairly new-looking apartment building, the Deco Apartments. I tracked down a telephone number for the management of the building and reached a very friendly and helpful young woman. I launched into my fairly unusual story about the reason why I was calling, and even before I could finish, she verified that yes, she knew uh, Geb Jazine and could confirm that he was a resident there. She also said that yes, Nancy Richardson was indeed the staff member at the property who was in charge of receiving packages. I thanked her for the confirmation, and based on the information, I figured the order, or at least the shipping information, was legit, and so I proceeded. As is fairly standard for the season, it was a very busy time for fine art sales, as people decide sometimes at the last minute to give photographs to loved ones during the holidays. We doubled our efforts to get everything printed, signed, and shipped out as quickly as we could. The order had admittedly come in a bit late, but we hustled to get the order out the door, and we were able to have the photograph delivered via FedEx to Mr. Jazine by December 26th. From there, everything proceeded as usual. The gallery wired my commissions for December sales, and life went on into the new year. A sign of trouble. The first sign of trouble did not come until more than five weeks later when Visa contacted the gallery's credit card processor to inform them that the sales transactions for the order from mid-December had been reported as fraudulent and that they would be debiting back the amount of the sale. The gallery owner seemed fairly forlorn about being duped and kicked himself for not listening to his intuition. But I admitted to him that I consider myself fairly savvy about online schemes, and yet I hadn't heard of this one. I don't know that I would have figured it out while it was happening, especially during such a forensic season. I reminded him of the Henri Matisse quote, and I'm paraphrasing, that instinct is something that should be pruned like a tree. Matisse was right, of course. Instinct and tuition need to be carefully shaped and can never be trusted 100%. Though, obviously, in this case, we ought to have left the prunes in the shed. That same day, I contacted the Denver police who directed me to file the report for this of this grand larceny here in Seattle as it needs to be submitted where the victim resides. So the Seattle police took a report over the phone the same day calling back a couple of times with additional questions, which I took as a good sign that they might give this case some time and attention. I also called the management company at the Deco Apartments, explaining what had transpired and leaving messages for Nancy Richardson, the woman who would have received the package, and Brandon Williams, who I was told was the building manager. But I'm disheartened to say that neither returned my message. When I followed up again a few days later, they were much less friendly and helpful. I was told in no uncertain terms that they wanted nothing to do with this situation. Apparently, one of the amenities of the Deco Apartments Denver, along with a Mountain View rooftop deck, in-house cycle shop, a pool, fitness center, and ski simulator, is that they won't assist anyone trying to hold their tenants responsible for their crimes, including situations in which they may have facilitated that crime. What happens at DECO stays at DECO. The scam becomes clearer. 
In the week since the situation was first reported to me, I've gained a bit more perspective about what was going on here. First, it is fairly clear that the man who walked into the gallery is not the same person that the photograph was shipped to. I suspect that Gabe Jazine is merely a mule of some kind. Investigators in Denver are looking into whether he is an unwitting participant or part of a wider organized crime network, something that perhaps could have been resolved quickly if the Deco Apartments management had not so quickly washed their hands of the situation. An online report was filed with the FBI field office in Denver, who obviously have bigger fish to fry. But I figured it didn't hurt as this grand larceny did involve interstate fraud in multiple jurisdictions and could be related to wider organized crime, especially if this alleged mule might be receiving and forwarding cash or gift cards from the victims of other financial scams. From what I'm told, this is a credit card refund scam. Every detail of the original story told by the buyer likely was concocted. The purchase was made with multiple stolen credit card numbers, and the intention was to direct the refunds to different credit card numbers that the criminal controlled, thus laundering the funds and preventing that money from being recovered. By issuing the refunds to the original forms of payment via the original transaction numbers, the gallery owner unknowingly thwarted the scheme and left the criminals empty-handed. The fact that they proceeded with the purchase of one of the three photographs was simply so the gallery owner would not grow suspicious had they asked to cancel and refund the entire order. They probably never had any interest in my photographs. There is a real possibility that the recipient of the December 26th shipment threw it in a dumpster, that he'll sell it for a few bucks or maybe has put it up on a wall in his apartment. The objective here was the money, and I doubt any of them are giving much thought to the independent visual artists and small businesses they have stolen from during the holiday season, no less. As this is an active investigation, I have no idea how this story ends. Champagne Scuba has been a popular piece in the Big Appetite series, and in fact, the photograph that was stolen was, uh, was edition number 30 of 30. So while other sizes of the photograph are still available, it is now, thanks to the thieves, sold out in popular exhibition size, with the exception of a couple of pieces still held in gallery inventories. Of course, the theft has been reported to stolen art registry, so if it ever turns up for sale or auction by a legit gallery, it should get flagged. But in the meantime, I'm still the victim of the physical theft of one of my fine art photographs. That the photograph was ancillary to the main objective and the thieves didn't really succeed with their scam is cold comfort. More often than not, I'm the victim of digital theft of my work, which is no less violating. So this was the first in that a physical piece was stolen. If you don't count the deranged man who broke into my gallery in Boston several years ago who stole and vandalized several pieces of work, including another champagne scuba piece, coincidentally, and who was later apprehended by the Boston Police Department after an incident in which he threw some of the stolen artworks through a plate glass window at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. I guess that's one way to get your work into museums. With overworked, understaffed police departments, I don't have much confidence that they will have time to track down my stolen photograph, but I certainly will update this article with any new developments. And this is one heck of a story, and I do really hope that this person is able to get that piece recovered. Never fun when you have someone dupe you like this, and I warn people all the time, be very cautious. More often than not, if it sounds too good to be true, it's exactly that. All right, I'm going to take a break right here, and then I'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the Liam Photography Podcast. The best way to support the show is to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. If you want to leave comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can call or text the show at area code 470-294-8191. And you can email the show at liam at liamphotographypodcast.com. You can find the show notes and links at liamphotographypodcast.com. And you can tweet the show at liamphotoatl using the hashtag 
hashtag Liam Photo Podcast. And now back to the show. And we're back. Seven tips for terrific tree photos how to create order from chaos. From gnarled veterans to sky soaring giants, trees are majestic subjects to experience and photograph. While shifting seasons, wild weather, and fleeting light can make the pursuit a highly rewarding yet achingly frustrating one. How often have you spotted a nice tree, taken a few photos, and returned home only to find the results a poor replica of what your eyes saw? Trees, it will come as no surprise, tend to grow in forests. This means even the most photogenic ones compete with distractions like leaf litter, dead branches, bright sky patches, and other trees that creep into the frame. How rude! But in photography, overcoming these challenges is often half the fun. So I prepared seven tips to help you capture the beauty that drew you to the tree in the first place. Number one, stay curious to capture defining details. Forests are complex environments, often overflowing with distractions. These chaotic elements like dead trunks or wayward branches can combine to undermine the scene of harmony in your images. So when you find tree scenes too overwhelming, focus on key details instead. Try to isolate defining features while obscuring others. Approaching scenes with open eyes and a curious mind, you might 1. Focus on trunk patterns, experimenting with swirls, lines, and shapes. 2. Switch to a telephoto lens to fill the frame with a few shapely branches. 3. Look for exposed bark with fresh colors and textures. 4. Try a shallow depth of field to separate the tree from the background. And five, shoot from a distance, showing the forest as an abstract grouping of trunks. As you try and sometimes fail to capture these details, remember that not every image will be a portfolio-worthy shot. The point isn't to produce perfection with each frame, but to experiment with new angles and focus on fresh features. To see what works and what doesn't, and then refine the composition until it's as compelling as you can make it. Two return under better conditions. This second trip might be the most straightforward, simply show up again, yet doing so will drastically improve the quality of your photography. Say you've seen a nice tree that's captured your attention. Great, go ahead and take a few photos. But if you've just arrived at a new location, it's highly unlikely that you'll snap the best shot possible on your first visit. If you can, I want to hear your secrets. It may be the wrong season and there's too much dead foliage, or it could be windy making all the branches blurry. So do what all professional nature photographers do. Note the location, be patient, and return under better light. I say better light as what constitutes this will depend on the scene. You might return when A. Direct sunlight reflects off nearby rock shelf. B. A sky full of wispy clouds produces softer side light to help shape and help add shape and depth to the scene. C. The exposed hillside is ignited in a glowing, a golden glow after daybreak. D. Fog softens the background and directs attention towards your tree subject. And E, harsh backlight illuminates the branches in a glowing halo. Three, go explore and gain elevation. Sometimes it's not until we reach the base of a tree that we see its true photographic potential. But looking up like this tends to increase the number of distracting canopy gaps, patches of bright sky while uh, between the leaves at the top of the frame. To help minimize these, look for features in the landscape that can provide you with a higher elevation to take the shot, a boulder, a fallen trunk, or a hill. You'll be better positioned to shoot across the scene rather than up at it. Sometimes even an extra foot or two in elevation can significantly reduce the number of canopy gaps. Plus, when you're on a well-worn track, you will likely only see a fraction of the potential frames on offer. So leave the path occasionally to explore the scene from other angles and vantage points. See how the tree looks from behind or to the side. But above all, be careful and considerate when going off track. Leave the vegetation undisturbed. 
If the area looks pristine or delicate, leave it that way. No photo is worth ruining the scene it was taken in. Four, it's okay to exclude parts of the tree. When you notice a nice tree, you don't have to photograph the entire tree. By trying to include every branch and every leaf, we'll often zoom out too far from the key features that caught our eye. Ending the frame early and cutting off straight branches serves two purposes. Firstly, you'll place more visual weight on the most appealing elements. Don't just include nice features like fra uh, fractal branches or bold autumnal colors in the photo. Instead, make the whole photo about those features. And secondly, close close crop and add sense of mystery to the scene. Viewers will be left to ponder what could be just beyond the frame. Another technique is to use a trunk to frame one side of the scene. This serves as a natural anchor blocking off the edge and directing the viewer's gaze towards your main subject. And by cropping the frame just before the trunk ends, you'll give the impression that the tree could be much wider than it is, turning an ordinary tree into a giant. Five, make subtle processing refinements. So far, each tip has covered what to do in the field, yet skilled post-processing is just as important. Here are two simple yet powerful techniques. Firstly, soften or lighten the shadow areas to lessen harsh distractions. Why? A viewer's eye is drawn to areas of strong contrast. So to minimize distractions like the deep shadows found between roots or the darker side of trunks, you can selectively brighten the harsher dark areas in your frame. In Photoshop, you might use a luminosity mask to isolate the darker pixels and add a brightness adjustment layer. Then boost brightness in these areas by plus 20 to plus 40, depending on the intensity of the shadows in your scene. This will help to ease the transition between light and dark. Secondly, reduce contrast through your scene to enhance depth. Due to the natural effects of air particles scattering light, think of how mountain ridges appear hazy at lookouts, our minds associate low contrast with greater distance. So to amplify the appearance of depth in your two-dimensional image, selectively soften contrast in far-off trees. But so, but so subtly. Even a small contrast decrease in distant trees and a slight boost in near trees will combine to, to convey greater dimensionality in your image. Six, introduce context to tell a richer story. While you want to exclude distractions and prevent your image from feeling crowded, including supporting elements in the photo can enhance the overall story in your scene. Perhaps you might include a fallen trunk to symbolize the forest life cycle. Or you might position a sweeping stream to lead the viewer's eye. Or you might frame the foreground with vivid ferns to showcase the lushness of the forest. But when you include additional features, do so with intent. Don't simply introduce elements to add foreground interest. Add these elements to frame your subject better. Add elements that allude to the surrounding ecosystem. Add elements to tell a richer story. Number seven, fine-tune your frame for a cleaner view. When you spot a stunning tree, resist the urge to plant down your tripod then and there. As an artist, your aim should be to find the best frame possible, working with the constraints of the landscape. So don't stay stuck in the spot where you first notice the scene. Instead, crouch down, shift sideways, and explore every angle as you try to prevent trunks from overlapping to establish subject separation, avoid branches creeping into the corners of your frame, and create breathing room between trees by stepping forwards and backwards. Sometimes shifting your camera by a few centimeters can evoke a much more pleasing sense of order in your scene. Granted, a dist uh, distant trees will obstruct each other regardless of where you position your camera. But in the immediate zone of interest, say two to 10 meters away, give your subjects room to breathe so they can stand on their own. And for final thoughts, at first glance, forests can be overwhelming environments to capture a single image. But as photographers, that's the challenge we're up against each time we shoot new complex scenes. We must work within the constraints of the natural world to experiment, innovate, and solve problems. That's how we can showcase trees in their best light, to move beyond taking snapshots and start creating art.
happy shooting. And there are some beautiful images of trees in this article in the show notes. Now, about the author, Mitch Green is an Australian landscape photographer. Photographer, He can be found via his website and on Instagram or down by the beach at 5 a.m. waiting for sunrise. That's a great story. NASA released photos of strange circular sand dunes on Mars. Unusual sand dunes have been spotted on Mars, almost perfectly circular. Planetary scientists have been left baffled as to what they are. The high-resolution imaging science experiment, HiRISE, captured the images on November 22, 2022, as part of a mission to monitor how frost disappears in late winter. The University of Arizona, which operates HiRISE, pointed out in a statement that the odd dunes are slightly asymmetrical with steep slip faces on the south ends. Quote, this indicates that sand generally moves to the south, but the winds may be variable. The high-rise camera is attached to the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, MRO, spacecraft and takes pictures of vast areas of Martian terrain. The MRO was an L- uh, at an altitude of roughly 185 miles or 300 kilometers above the red planet, and the projected scale of the sand dune photos is 9.8 inches or 25 centimeters per pixel. While the sand dunes did not have any frost on them, scientists released a picture taken previously that shows what they look like while still frosty. As noted by space, the circular sand dunes are one of 60 sites being monitored by high-rise. The camera repeatedly photographs sand dunes over the course of a Martian year, which lasts 687 Earth days. And it gives planetary scientists the opportunity to detect the direction and speeds of the dunes' movement. So far, their studies have revealed that Martian sand dunes move at a rate of 3.3 feet, or 1 meter, per Martian year. Sand dunes on Mars come in all different shapes and sizes, and by researching them, terrestrial scientists learn about the weather conditions on Earth's neighbor. The movement of dunes indicates how winds impact the planet's surface and the direction they take on Mars' surface. Earlier this week, Petapixel reported on NASA's Curiosity Mars rover, which captured the first ever images of sun rays on the planet. And you can check out this article in the show notes to see the photographs that they captured for yourself. They are pretty cool. And now we'll head on over to the rumor site, starting with Canon Rumors. Canon lays out their corporate strategy. Canon has released their corporate strategy for the next few years. With the challenges over the last few years, Canon seems to have itself in a really good place and ready to grow again. Last year, the imaging group achieved sales and profit growth and a significant improvement in profitability. As for cameras, our mirrorless camera market share remains stable thanks to our strong market reputation. We also posted strong sales of new products, Through this, our camera business is supporting earnings as a mainstay of imaging. Our future growth strategy is to create new businesses while maintaining high profitability in existing ones. With EOSR and other existing products, we will create new markets and businesses by offering attractive products that anticipate market demands, strengthen our profit structure, activate group synergies, and deliver unprecedented value through products and solutions and we aim to achieve sales of 1 trillion yen in the imaging group in 2025. This year, we expect the global market for interchangeable lens cameras to be around 5.5 to 6 million units, and more than 70 of this to be mirrorless cameras. This year as well, we expect to maintain our number one share of the interchangeable lens camera market and at the same time aim to number one in mirrorless cameras as subsegment as well. In addition to market share, we will also work to expand sales volume of the EOS R system itself through three measures. The first is enhancing the EOS R system. To this end, we will expand our lineup of cameras and lenses to meet the diverse needs of our customers. Moreover, in recent years, the demographic of video-oriented users, such as video creators, media users, and SNS users, is thick and growing. We aim to expand the scale of the R system by including functions and performance that respond to user requests not only for still images, 
but also for videos. As the world of imaging is changing from 2D to 3D to XR, in anticipation of these future demands, we will also focus on the development of EOS VR systems and work to expand awareness of VR, improve the usability of apps and software, and create an environment where users can enjoy VR images. You can see the official presentation material at the accompanying links in this article in the show notes. Is Pixel Shift coming to the Canon EOS R5? We reported earlier this week that Canon would release a major firmware update for the Canon EOS R5 this year, likely sometime in quarter two. While firmware feature leaks are rare, we're receiving a lot of chatter about what is coming. One feature that may be coming to the EOS R5 for still shooters is Pixel Shift. There are currently no EOS R cameras with this capability. But what is Pixel Shift? Pixel Shift is a method in digital cameras for producing a super-resolution image. The method works by taking several images after each such capture, moving or shifting the sensor to a new position. In digital color cameras that employ Pixel Shift, this avoids a major limitation inherent in using Bayer pattern for obtaining color and instead produces an image with increased color resolution and, assuming a static subject or additional computational steps, an image free of color more. Taking this idea further, subpixel shifting may increase the resolution of the final image beyond that suggested by the specific uh, image resolution of the sensor. This would be a welcomed addition for still shooters who tend to get less in new firmware than the video folks do. This is a rumor, and we haven't confirmed the information above as of the time of this writing. And it would be interesting to see if Canon does implement pixel shift in a future firmware update for the EOS R5. And now over to Nikon rumors. Check out this rare Nikkor N 1.150 millimeter lens. Lights Auction has this rare Nikkor N 1.1 over 50 millimeter in their upcoming auction that will take place in June 10th in Germany. Nikon was the first of the major camera manufacturers to offer an ultra-fast 50 millimeter lens. The famous Nikkor N 1 to 1 50 millimeter was an impressive optical achievement with the lens containing nine optical elements in a relatively compact housing. A rare version of this special lens in M39 mount and with a black front rim will be available in our June auction. Definitely an interesting lens, and I doubt it's going to be cheap when it sells at auction. The Nikon Z8, what we think we know so far. Here is a recap of what we think we know about the upcoming Nikon Z8 camera with a few small details I received recently. The Z8 was described to me as a hybrid camera between the Z7 and the Z9, similar form factor to the Nikon Z6 and Z7, improved EVF, improved autofocus, same sensor as the Z9, will not have all the Z9 features, obviously, announcement expected before the summer, price in Europe around 4,500 euros, not sure if this is for a camera only or for a kit lens, US prices are usually lower. Updates unconfirmed. The latest announcement time frame I got is April and shipping in May. Development announcement could come earlier. We'll have the same battery as the Nikon Z7, the Nikon EN-EL15C. External battery grip will be available. 8K60 video. Dedicated USB-C power delivery port for charging and continuous use. 9 megapixel EVF, the Canon US R3 already has 5.8 megapixel EVF. If you have any information on the Z8, you can contact me anonymously at the link in this article in the show notes. So definitely interesting to see if any of this comes true in the expected release of the Nikon Z8. And now from Fuji Rumors, update, Lightroom fails with X-Trans 5. Are 40 megapixel Fujifilm X-T5 files really softer than 26 megapixel X-Trans 4 files? The Spanish website Fujistas has shared reports that the 26 megapixel RAF were sharper to 40 megapixel RAF with the development settings by default. 
He shares samples of images processed with DxO and other software where he gets clearly superior results out of the 40 megapixel sensor over the older 26 megapixel sensor. So the deduction uh, Fujita's makes is that this problem is related to Lightroom only. I can't verify that myself as I dropped Lightroom a few years ago in favor of Capture One, which is my main editor. And I use Topaz DxO occasionally, too, with DxO gaining more and more of my attention. But I can report what Fuji Film X guru Rico Firstinger had to say about it already a few months ago at the German Fuji Film X forum. Quote, it must be noted here again that with the Lightroom and Adobe Camera Raw, the basic sharpening compared to previous Fuji models with the 26 megapixel sensor has apparently been withdrawn or not balanced. Since there are also multi-level values for, quote, baseline sharpening tag and baseline noise tag at Adobe, you cannot necessarily compare identical settings for the controls for sharpening and noise reduction. So it is meant nicely, but still not necessarily effective for objective comparisons. If DPR always sets all Lightroom camera raw controls for noise reduction and sharpening to zero for the raw comparison, what else should they do? Besides, zero can mean a different zero for each camera model. This also explains why the RAWs look softer on the X-H2 with a 40 megapixels at zero sharpening than on the older 26 megapixel studio examples. To compensate for this, it is sufficient to set the focus regulator at 40 megapixels from zero to five or 10. Then the baselines are back on the same level and you can better compare detail resolution and sharpness. Update Fujita's contacted me and said, quote, I only found the 26 megapixel RAF were sharper to 40 megapixel ones with the development settings by default. I basically warn about the inconsistence of the sharpening in the Lightroom from one X-Trans sensor generation to another. And then, of course, write about other software alternatives. But in the end of the article, I clarified that I can get better results with the 40 megapixel RAF, suggesting the default sharpness settings. So to me, this all sounds that 40 megapixels are sharper, but you have to adjust the sharpness settings. So definitely interesting. And it's not surprising because Adobe's products usually lag a bit behind in their support for Fujifilm RAW files, which is one of the reasons why I've been using Capture One for a number of years now. Fujifilm, the current state and the future challenges. The comeback of an old friend. For us longtime Fujifilm lovers, Fujifilm manager Toshia uh, Iida, the manager who said Fujifilm will never go full frame, was arguably the most representative face of the Fujifilm XGFX series of the last 10 years. Sadly for us, but congratulations to him, Toshi left the electronic imaging division once he got promoted to president and managing director at Fujifilm Europe back in 2020. I must admit, I was a bit worried when T, uh, Toshi left as I felt that the Fujifilm XGFX series was in safe hands as long as he was in charge. He did run the business with huge dedication, passion, and vision, as can also be seen in this brilliant documentary, which is a must-watch, that gives an intimate look into his life and work as imaging director. I honestly thought it would be hard to replace a manager like Toshi Aeda. But if I look at all the crazy stuff Fujifilm has released in 2022, all my worries dissipate. Under the new management, Fujifilm must not only continue to work hard and believe in its imaging division, but they also gave us the most lens, uh, most release intense year I can remember with three higher end cameras, four XF lenses and one GF lens, plus some accessories such as the legendary cooling fan and the TG-BT1 tripod grip. grip. Uh, the future seen through Fujifilm manager statements. But the questions that burn inside many of us is, is there a future for the Fujifilm X and GFX system considering the overall market conditions and strong competition? I know Fujifilm CEO Mr. Gatto said back in 2021 that Fujifilm won't stop the photography business as camera is part of their culture and legacy. 
To me, it did sound like a solid commitment, but others perceived it as a set phrase rather than something they truly believe in. During the year of Fuji's 10th X-Series anniversary, various Fujifilm managers said in several interviews that they looked forward to the next 10 years of X-Series, which they work hard on. The present and numbers, words are nice and good, but if the numbers don't allow it, then there's no future for Fujifilm digital cameras. And this is where Toshisha Aeda made his comeback and gives us something to be optimistic about. During the presentation of the Wonder Expo in Barcelona, Toshisha Aeda shared a few slides and comments that the Spanish website Fujistas summed up and we share in English below. Toshi said, quote, only the only way to succeed is permanent and consistent investment and research over time. Toshi put great emphasis on the great recovery of sales in photography. Fujista says that unlike in previous appointments in which I had an aftertaste of survival instinct in the speech, I like to see the enthusiasm and pride shown by the good performance of the X-Series and GFX. Toshi said there is a feeling that the photographic business is decreasing due to the rise of smartphones, but this is not the case with Fujifilm. Fujifilm sees the mobile phone not as an enemy for Fujifilm, but as an ally. Imaging's global sales in the last 10 years have improved by 37%. Profit in the imaging division goes from losses in 2012 to 67 billion yen of positive balance in 2022. At European level, the imaging division represents 16% of the company's profits in 2021 and 27% of the profits in 2022. This gives the impressions that the imaging division is in good health. In Spain, 40% of Fujifilm's business has to do with imaging. The exceptional vitality of Fujifilm's imaging division has a lot to do with Instax. Fujistas left the meeting with a very positive feeling about Fujifilm's future. Quote, with this article, I try to answer the doubt of those who have repeatedly asked me if I sincerely see a future in the Fujifilm X-Series. I genuinely believe that we have X-Series and GFX for a while, and not only because of commitment to the photographic legacy of Fujifilm's top managers, but because of a belief in the viability and growth of the business. So taken as a whole, Instax plus electronic imaging, the imaging division is prospering and growing strong, not only in Europe, but as we can see in Fuji's latest financial results also worldwide. And consider this. Instax does not need lots of R&D. It's mostly just about designing a plastic box that takes Instax film. So it's minimal R&D with massive profits, and most of the profit is done with Instax film anyways, which requires zero R&D at this point. Fujifilm can draw on the massive Instax profits to fuel the development of their X and GFX series. Also, since the basic technology in the X and GFX series is identical, as managers have recently said here, every investment that Fujifilm made, for example, to develop the fifth generation X series products, the X-H2, the X-H2S, and the X-T5, can be transferred over to the GFX series relatively easily and cheaply, or the other way around. Technology developed for the GFX series can be used for the X series. So from this point of view, Fujifilm is well set for the future, but future challenges. But just because things go well today, it does not mean that we can be sure the next 10 years will be flourishing years for Fujifilm as well. There are several issues Fujifilm has to face. The team. I have no idea how big the Fujifilm team dedicated to X and GFX development is, but I doubt it grew as strong as their camera sales did. If Fujifilm wants to keep prospering, then they should continue to expand their team so that they can work simultaneously on new firmware, new products, and new lenses. A great example for this is the new X app, which Fujifilm internally presented to the press already a long time ago. But it's evidently pushed back in the priority list in favor of the new fifth-generation camera and firmware development. With a bigger team, I am sure the X app would have been already out competition. Another issue is competition, but it's the one that worries me less because I believe that the stronger the competition is, the more it will push Fujifilm to work harder. So at the end, it is a good thing and we should just be happy when other camera companies release new powerful gear.
In fact, I am very disappointed that Hasselblad isn't going all too serious with their medium format X2D and that other camera companies don't join this format. I believe the GFX system would highly or hugely profit from stronger competition. Manufacturing and Supply Fujifilm is having massive struggles with manufacturing gear, which is currently mainly manufactured in Japan, the Philippines, and China. I am not sure if they still make cameras in Thailand, though they certainly did in the past. For example, this camera was made in Thailand, and you can read that article in the article in this article in the show notes. For a long time, the zero COVID policy of China continuously disrupted their production, as for every brand that produces in China. Now that's no longer an issue, but China remains a relative gamble in terms of investment looking at the future geopolitical challenges. Supply is another thing Fujifilm was very bad at, and they must improve. They've made creative steps in trying to improve that, as announced in 2022, but we don't really see the fruits of that system until now. As we reported already, there are still lots of cameras that Fujifilm has huge troubles to deliver. And what are your thoughts? How do you see Fujifilm's future? And which system do you think is more future-proof, the X or the GFX? Feel free to drop your thoughts in the comments of this article. And I do agree with some of the points in this article, especially at the tail end, because right now Fuji is struggling to manufacture cameras just as all the other brands are, it seems. Um, and evidence, evidence of this for Fujifilm is the inability to buy an X100V. Because of TikTok users, this uh, non-interchangeable lens mirrorless camera that is popular and one of Fujifilm's staples is pretty much impossible to get right now unless you want to pay a stupidly highly inflated price on Amazon or eBay. The camera retails for $13.99, but every camera shop has it listed as on back order. And for some reason, Fuji's decided not to ramp up production of that body in another factory to help fill the demand, which is definitely an odd thing. At least that's what I think. Currently, it's taken upwards of three months to get an X100V if you place an order with somebody like B&H Photo or Adorama. And now over to Sony rumors to wrap up today's episode. Leaked Sony high-end camera. It's a giant inflatable camera obscura. You jump on it to take a picture. This image was created with AI, and I am currently investigating on how to merge my real photography with AI. Just follow my tutorials on YouTube if you want to see if this, if this AI tool or just an unethical, horrible hype, or if there's some parts of it that we photo photographers could use. And you can see his accompanying YouTube videos in this article in the show notes. 12-minute tutorial showing the features of the world's first Benro Theta auto-leveling tripod. The new Benro Theta is selling like hotcakes on Kickstarter. Here is the full 12-minute long tutorial that shows you why this tripod is so unique. And of course, you can see that video on Benro's official YouTube channel. And it is a de definitely an interesting concept. I uh, had an idea for an electronic tripod myself, not a self-leveling one, but at least one that had electronic legs. So you could push a button, the legs would extend out. If you released it, they would stop wherever you released and then lock down somehow. And then you could press the, another button or press the uh, original button. It could be a rocker button in the opposite direction to retract the legs once again. I just wish I had the money to develop and build the prototype. All right, that's going to wrap up all the news and rumors episodes for this, or stories for this week, excuse me. Remember to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. It is a private group and you must answer a security question to join, which is the name of the host of the show, myself, Liam. And I've also opened it up to allow you to give the name of a previous guest on the show to show that you are a listener. Once you're in the group, you are free to post your own original work. I'm also the admin of the Fujifilm GFX 50R group, which is the largest group for the 50R on Facebook. If you own or plan to own the 50R, you can 
respectfully request to join that group, but you do have to answer two security questions to join that group. You can find my work at liamphotography.net and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at liamphotoatl. If you like abandoned buildings and history, you can find my projects at forgottenpiecesofgeorgia.com and forgottenpiecesofpennsylvania.com. All right, that's going to wrap episode 323 of the Liam Photography Podcast. I want to thank all of my listeners once again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you might be getting your podcasts. I also wanted to remind you that you still have 38 days in which to get your entries in for your chance to win a Platypod Extreme flat tripod. You can find the link to the contest in the, this episode's show notes, as well as the last few episodes and my last few YouTube videos. Also, please remember to stop by Liam Photography on YouTube, subscribe to the channel, watch the videos, like them, comment on them, share them out on social media, and hit the little bell icon so you can be notified when new content drops. I will be releasing later today part two of my Tioga County uh, Forgotten Pieces of Pennsylvania video, so you want to watch for that and make sure you have that bell icon clicked so you'll be notified when it posts. And I also wanted to let my listeners know that next Thursday's episode, I will be interviewing Bure Perry of Bure Perry Photography. He's a Tampa-based event and wedding photographer, so he and I will be having a sit-down and talking about event photography and wedding photography, and that is definitely an episode you're not, not going to want to miss. All right, everybody, I will see you all again on Thursday. <laughs>